Hey, this is Nathan. Samir's still gone, but to take his place, I have another guest on the show. Do you want to introduce yourself? Certainly. My name is Gary Simpson. And how do we know each other, Gary? I think we first met at Queer Prom, what was it, two or three years ago or more? Uh, That was about four years ago. Four years ago, okay. And I was staffing a table for the United Church, specifically for McDougal United Church at Queer Prom. And I was there just wanting to go to any kind of prom because I had kind of missed out on the opportunity to go to regular prom. And this was probably like my one shot at having that experience. There were certain parts about that event that I I enjoyed. I liked uh, dancing with people. I liked all the gluten-free pizza that was available. It was kind of weird that we weren't allowed to take pictures or take videos of anyone. And and like after about an hour and a half, you would kind of seen everything that you could want to see. But then I I remember seeing Gary's booth. He was uh, staffing it along with our now good friend, Larry Durkich. And there was a part of me that wanted to know like how exactly you could be both Christian and LGBT at the same time, because that, that was what seemed to be the mission behind this table. And so I went up, I started asking questions, and we had a conversation that lasted about three hours. Was it that long, maybe? Yes. (laughs) And and like, I I don't usually enjoy talking to people for that long, but it Mm -hmm. was just like such a wonderful conversation. And then a couple months later, you and I both ran into each other at a GSA event. Oh, yes, right. Yes. And so I asked you to ask Larry if both of you would be willing to meet up with me for dinner a couple of times and I could record a conversation, much like what we're doing Mm -hmm. right now. I could ask you questions and uh, try to understand your perspectives a little bit more. Yeah, I remember that. Those were interesting questions, very insightful questions, very tough questions to answer. Yes. So if I might ask, over the last week, how has God been working in your life? Hmm, good question. I've been putting up a daily uh, liturgy each evening at about 7 o'clock. I'm following the outline of a liturgy that's in a book called Common Prayer, a liturgy for ordinary radicals. But I'm not using their liturgy, I'm just kind of following the text that they use each day. And then I just kind of go through the liturgy that I've outlined, read portions of or summarize the texts for that particular day. And I may or may not engage with the text. Sometimes I just leave it there and let people reflect for a few seconds and we conclude. Uh, Other times I may give maybe a 30 second or a minute thought about one of or all of the passages. So it's very, very condensed. Probably start to finish anywhere from four to seven or eight minutes in length. And so like, what exactly is the purpose of this liturgy? Well, it's for anybody. Uh, The church I attend has I think almost all other churches in Alberta are closed now. So our church doesn't really have a lot of ways of reaching out and being community for people inside the church. I share it across on different Facebook accounts, both pages and and groups. And then after probably two or three days, I come back and delete the old ones. So they're not sitting there forever. Like I don't want a page or a group to be nothing but me. So I go back through and delete off the old ones and try and keep just two or three days worth up. Uh, Wouldn't you want to keep an archive of sorts, though? I do have the written text, so I have a sense of what I did each day. I might talk about how I think God has been working in my life over the last week. This might sound a little bit weird to say it 
right now in this kind of context. But for the last 11 years or so, I've been struggling with sex addiction. And I would say for the last six years of my life, I've always had it as a goal, a personal goal to try and make it to 100 days without indulging in sexual temptations. And I would say that right now it's day 33. So I'm about a third of the way to that goal. Uh, I don't remember the last time I managed to get this far, which is both pleasing to think about and also extremely terrifying because like it's, it's not anything too special. I've gone through this milestone before, but at the same time, I, I'm kind of wondering like, is this going to be the run that I win in is that or it am I going to end up falling down like I have every other time before but like the, the fact that I have gone this far it, it gives me hope and I just need to trust in God uh, and have faith in him that he's going to deliver me in freedom from this unfortunate addiction I remember a, a Pentecostal minister who compared sexuality with horse riding and I realize it sounds kind of odd you said you get bucked off occasionally you fall off the horse, you get back up. It makes perfect sense. Uh, so I wouldn't worry too much about it if you happen to do things that you don't feel comfortable about later. It's just part of parcel of human life. And so, like, as we're talking about sexuality, let's transition okay. into our main topic for today. What's What's interesting about you is that you're in that minority of Christians who, who are both, like, openly Christian, openly queer. You haven't turned your back on the church. You haven't turned your back on the homosexual lifestyle. You're proud about who you are and what you stand for. And so if I might ask, how did that journey of self-discovery come to be? Well, which parts of the journey of self-discovery? Well, like, <laughs> like, have you always been a Christian? Like, was there a point in your life where, like, God stepped in and, and you could see that his power in your life? Or are you a Christian just, like, out of tradition, out of habit? Well, it's just more than out of tradition, out of habit. I grew up in a Christian home, and going to church was considered to be like going to work. It was an appointment unless you were sick. You were to be there. So this small church that I was a part of when I was in my teens sometimes didn't meet when it was cold during the winter time. But you'd hear this kind of a background going. Somebody would phone my father. Well, there's a whole bunch of us that aren't going to church because it's cold. And my father said, "Well, my family's going." There'd be a silence. Oh well, if you're going, maybe we'll go. And the next thing you know, we would have almost everyone in the church together meeting. So it, it, people just didn't feel comfortable getting up what is minus thirty or minus forty and going to church. But if they knew something was going on, there was going to be a family there. It was amazing how many people would show up. So often we would be maybe one family short, and that was it. So my father's feeling was, well, we're able to get there, and we can walk if we have to. So we were in town. The church was in town. Uh, so we went ahead and went. And that seemed to be kind of the thing that kept the church going when it was bitterly cold. So that growing up with that attitude, then it was difficult to feel like you just walk away from church. There was a period of time when I would say I wasn't really adhering too much to Christian lifestyle and philosophy. And then it became apparent to me that that was something I really needed to do. And I did have kind of an encounter. Uh, one person described it as a Saul on the road to Damascus type of conversion. And that's possibly true. And I remember once when I was making some comments that probably weren't very nice. I don't think they're about politics, although they often are a bit edgy if it's me and it's political stuff. And this person said, someone made some comment about me being not being very much of a Christian. And this person I'd known for years said, oh, he's been born again, believe it or not. He's really been born again. <laughs> and, and so like, if I might ask, what does the story of that encounter look like? 
Well, it was a personal thing, like there weren't a lot of people around. So it was in my bedroom. Not sure I can say much else about it, but it, it really did feel like, I think Paul had a sense that God hunted him down. And that would be the sense I had too. Not particularly interested, but God hunted me down. And so like you were sitting in your bedroom one day and you, you were thinking and like all of a sudden the light bulb went on. Something like that. When you were not really living a, a Christian lifestyle, was this the point in your life where you were trying to discover your sexuality and trying to figure out who you were? On no, that? That, no? Was, that was before then. Okay, so what does that story look like? Where like you sort of came to the understanding, oh, I'm gay. That was something that was kind of gradual. It is for some people. For other people, it isn't. Toward the end of college, I was kind of getting a sense that maybe I might be gay. And in graduate school, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, I think that's definitely the case. But I was living in a small community at that stage. Uh, graduate school was six weeks a year in a reasonable sized city, not a major city, but a reasonable sized city. So I go back home going, okay, I now know I'm gay, but what do I do with this? I don't know anyone that is gay. I mean, I, I knew if a couple of people were gay, but I had no idea of where to get in touch with them or how to get in touch with them or where they lived or anything. This was pre-internet, at least pre-internet for most people at that stage. So it was kind of like, yeah, I know who I am, but I don't know what this means. And I'm not sure how to live as a gay Christian, but I will just continue living as I have been before. Uh, and so how were you able to figure that out of living as a gay Christian? Like, how, how are you? I suppose the big question that we have to ask is, like, how are you able to reconcile the worldview of homosexuality and the worldview of Christianity? I don't see them as being opposed. Even when it's stated directly in Scripture? Well, that's your interpretation. As opposed to what the scriptures actually say. Okay. So we have to be kind of careful with that. So here, let me start to explain that a little bit. There's a difference between a literal read of the Bible in English, in a translation, and a read of the Bible in Hebrew and Greek. Those can be very different things. So that's one thing we need to keep in mind. The other one we need to keep in mind is the context of each passage in the Bible. I don't believe in context and if we look at the linguistics to it, too, the ancient languages, I don't believe there's any condemnation for people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, or trans. So I look at it and say, I, that's my sense from the Bible as I read it and study it, that there's no condemnation. Jesus healed the centurion's servant, a man who the centurion said he loved. There's a good chance, because this wasn't unusual, for the slave to have been the owner's sex toy. They had concubines. And there were men who were sex slaves to other men. So that could very well have been what happened. The story of David and Jonathan may well be a same-sex romance. You know, Ruth and Naomi. So there are glimpses in the Bible where we may see sexual and gender minority people being represented, plus the passages that seem to condemn same-sex actions are actually not about loving same-gender sexual relations. So the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible doesn't say homosexuality was the sin. It doesn't state that at all. The list of sins that are listed about that in the Bible don't mention homosexuality. And what is it? Well, it's a story about attempted rape. Rape, be it straight or gay, is a sin and it's wrong. It's forcing someone to do something against their will. That's wrong. So that was definitely a sin. The sin there as the Bible sees it, tends to be based more on lack of hospitality. And how can you be more inhospitable than to sexually assault someone? 
And this was a city that was notorious for its hostility toward any visitors. And I think the, I can't remember if it's the Talmud or the, which is an oral commentary on the Bible, or if it's the Mishnah, another ancient Jewish oral commentary that eventually got written down, where it describes things like being one size of beds in Sodom. And if you were a visitor staying in an inn, they had a solution if you're feet were, legs were a little too long and your legs hung over the bed, they just saw your legs off, make it fit. And if you were too short for the bed, they would just, you know, stretch you out a bit. It was a town that was very, very hostile to people who were new in the community and were visiting. There's a story also in there is that if you were to try to avoid the toll for crossing the roads, you swim across, or crossing the bridge, I should say, so you swim across the river, the fine for swimming across the river was higher than the toll for going across the bridge. It was a community that did not want outsiders. So a story of attempted sexual assault would fit kind of with the general sense of, of the city. And if you read the beginning of the story where the angels come down and they visit Abraham. Sorry, it's not Abraham. I can't remember now. Lot and was Lot's uh, brother-in-law. Um, gee, sorry, I'm running out of names here for a second. Where the angels come down and visit and they say, oh, you know, we're going to go over basically and visit Sodom because we've heard bad things. And that's when this bargaining starts. Will you destroy the city if there are 50 righteous? No. Will you destroy, this is bargaining with God, will you destroy the city if there are, and, and it keeps going down, will you destroy the city if there are 10 that are righteous? And God says no. So the angels were going there and they were going to destroy the city. That was a foregone conclusion when the angels got there. That's a portion of the story of Sodom that's often not read, but that's certainly one that's I don't think is condemning same-gender sexual activities or loving ones. The two passages in Leviticus have a context of the worship of other gods. Well, I don't worship people I have sex with. I remember a, a clergy saying, because this is a discussion about kissing icons and so on, and in some churches he may kiss the the New Testament, they kiss the Bible, or they may kiss a Torah scroll in the synagogue. And I made some comment about not feeling comfortable with that because it felt like idol worship to me. And this man's response was, I kiss my wife, but I don't worship her, which, you know, was a valid response. So the passage is not about same gender sexual activities. In the context of both of those passages, really is about the worship of other gods. So if we take Genesis' Sodom story out of the picture, if we take Leviticus' uh, story out of the picture, we're not left with an awful lot that we can use from the Old Testament. Then we get down to a handful of texts in the New Testament. And again, it boils down to how do we see those passages as opposed to what tradition has taught us? Because there's a difference between traditional Christian views of passages and what passages may actually be reading the Bible. Yeah, there's a passage in Romans, but the context, again, is the worship of idols and other gods. It's not the worship of sexuality. You know, and Corinth and the study of Corinthians actually gives a person quite a sense as to, you know, what was going on in the ancient world. Because there were sexuality gods that people, fertility gods, essentially, that people worshipped. Well, you know, worshipping a fertility god and and what that may mean is not the way Christians have operated over the years. Can I present a number of responses? Mm -hmm. Sure. In regards to a lot of what you've said. First of all, I would say that in regards to Jesus healing the servant of the centurion, mm -hmm. perhaps you are right about that. But at the same time, Jesus healed a lot of people who were deemed sinners. 
irredeemable mm-hmm. sinners. The one example that comes to mind is when he healed uh, the 10 men with leprosy and one of them happened to be a Samaritan. And it turned out that the Samaritan was the only one who came back and thanked Jesus. I, I don't necessarily think that Jesus would necessarily say to the Samaritan, though, everything that you've been living your life in at the moment, it's noble, it's righteous. And so like, I, I think to, to present the idea that Jesus healed someone who was a sinner and he, he didn't have any issue with the sin itself, that might be a bit of a fallacy. A more direct criticism I would have to the ideas that you present in in regards to like Ruth and Naomi or David and Jonathan, I think you can read homoerotic subtext into those stories. But at the most, that's what it is. It's subtext. And so I would then have to ask, why wouldn't the writers of such books be more explicit in defining those relationships as romantic to the point of sexual activity? And why wouldn't other writers in the Bible choose to highlight people, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, who are in same-sex relationships with each other? I think the Jonathan and David story is quite explicit. If it was anything other than the Bible, any other form of literature, I think everybody would be going, yeah, those two had a relationship. There are ministers that have said that. If it was anything other than the Bible, nobody would ask any questions. They would assume it was a homosexual relationship. Ruth and Naomi's may not be quite as clear, but with Jonathan and David, I think it's quite clear. And the question, of course, too, is sex in the Bible is certainly there. It's discussed in numerous passages. I mean, the Song of Solomon is basically an entire book that's largely descriptive of sex. So it's not necessarily not present in the Bible, but I'm going to put it this way. In the overall picture of God choosing humanity and working the lives of humanity, sex is not the dominant theme. So who had sex with whom is not as important as the overall trends and pictures. In the story of, goodness, well, we just got it now. It was Abraham in, in Genesis. But in the story of Abraham, what, who was it relevant who he had sex with? Not really in the story. The story is a story about God working through Abraham and creating a nation out of Abraham's descendants. That's the big story. Who had sex with who is probably not that critical. So if we go through the Bible, we see a lot of that where the stories of the disciples, for example, we don't know who they were married to or if they were married in many cases. We don't know who they were having sex with. It wasn't relevant to the story of men who chose to leave everything and follow Jesus and became leaders in the early Christian church. The relevance was what was happening spiritually in their lives. What were they doing? How were they following God? How was God choosing them and and bringing them along? It wasn't who were they having sex with. So basically, like anyone who's not explicitly defined as heterosexual, it can be easy to interpret them as... But a lot of the people aren't really defined that much, one way or the other. And it's to the overall story of the Bible. Is it relevant? Not really. So another response I, I would have to say in regards to an idea that you put forward when you're talking about the New Testament and you're talking about how homosexuality was condemned in the context of idol worship, I suppose like the, the real serious question that I, I would want to ask is if Paul was condemning a specific kind of homosexuality, then why is it that he didn't present the right kind of homosexuality that one was supposed to follow? 
Well, let me see if I can talk in general about Paul. Because he did that with like heterosexuality and he defined what the parameters were for a man and a woman being together in marriage and what their roles were. And so like, why wouldn't he be able to do the same thing with homosexual couple? First of all, with Pauline epistles, we don't know in a couple of cases what he's talking about. The words don't exist. So let me see if I can explain a little bit more what I mean by that. They sort of exist, but not enough that we can get a sense of what's going on. Anne Nyland is an ancient Greek guru. Her expertise extends beyond biblical Greek into ancient Greek that was contemporary with the Bible. And she does state in one of those passages, we don't even know what the words mean. They're not used enough in ancient Greek outside the Bible for us to know for certain. And they certainly aren't used enough in inside the Bible, in the New Testament, for us to know. So when she translated the New Testament, she didn't even bother translating the words because she said, we don't know. And what words are those? Okay, yes. It's, it's, so 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, where it discusses, or mentions, I should say, uh, homosexuality, there's quite a variety of different translations. Effeminate is one. Well, being effeminate is not the same as being gay. Those are two vastly different things. Uh, so we're we're not quite sure what that means, and different translations have different ways of viewing that. The source New Testament, which was translated by Anne Nyland, she says in the footnotes of the translation that the verb appears in uh, a book, and she lists it here, sublime orclust, I think is how you say it, in the context of extortion and murder. She says one way a 6th century astronomer used the term was to describe the rape of women. Neither of those have to do with two men having sex. And then as I go down through here uh, on my website, I cite Tyndale's new uh, Bible commentary that notes that some people believe the word in Greek that's translated in most translations, more contemporary ones, as homosexual, might be restricted to male prostitutes, which will put it back in the context of worship of other gods, because in many cases, both the male and female prostitutes worked for temples. So were, they were temple prostitutes that raised money to help build the temples for other gods and to sustain them. So that's kind of the context you're seeing there. And this Tyndale New Testament commentary observes the inclusion of idolaters may point us to the immorality of such heathen worship of that day. And then uh, Charles Erdman in his commentary in 1 Corinthians says, the practice of impurity formed a feature of idolatrous worship. Then I give on my website three different translations from three very different versions of the Bible where you can see how they've translated the passage in a very different way. So we don't know for sure what 1 Corinthians is talking about. So I'm not going to get up and say I'm going to condemn people based on something that may not be a correct translation. There's a lot of disagreement over what the passage actually means and what that specific word means. I'm not involved in criticizing people. I wouldn't if it was somebody different than me. So why would I do that to myself or anybody else? That's still not necessarily answering the question that I have of why doesn't Paul ever talk about the proper way to conduct oneself in a homosexual relationship the way that he does with heterosexual relationships. Well, there, first of all, it's a small group of people, not everybody. And there's some people that believe, believe that the only form of homosexuality that he is condemning is the form of homosexuality where older men have underage men, kids basically, they're having sex with. 
in which case, if that's correct, that would be a very specific condemnation as opposed to a blanket condemnation. So it depends a lot on how, what we understand as we read through these passages. It's an understanding. It's a doctrinal position. So let me see if I can compare it to other doctrinal positions where there's a lot of controversy in Christianity. What does the Eucharist or the communion mean? Catholic and Orthodox people would tend to believe that the elements, the bread and the wine, become or are the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Lutherans are not quite there. Close, maybe, but not quite there. And a lot of people like myself or evangelical Christians by background say, well, it's just a symbol. Now, it's a very important symbol, but it's just a symbol. We have argued over that and excommunicated people and gotten real snotty and nasty over it over the centuries. It still remains a divisive point. Am I going to tell a Catholic or a member of the Orthodox Church or a Lutheran or an Anglican, well, because you don't share my perspective, you're damned? I wouldn't do that because I don't think that's right. So another area that's been very controversial is baptism. So do we do infant baptism? I don't see a lot of support for it in the Bible, but do we do infant baptism or do you only do adult believer baptism, or at least to the age where the person, if they're a young person, can understand what they're doing? Well, I would prefer that myself, but am I going to condemn somebody who is Lutheran or Anglican or Catholic for having had been baptized when they were babies? I mean, no. Am I going to condemn some Pentecostals who've chosen not to have water baptism? They've had baptism of the Spirit. They feel that confirms the fact that they are followers of Christ that they do not need to have a water baptism. I wouldn't say all Pentecostals and Charismatics believe that, but there are some that do. I wouldn't. It's a doctrinal difference, and I think that's where it needs to be left. We can have doctrinal differences without it dividing us. Tony Campolo and his wife used to debate the topic of homosexuality some. He was not, at that time, very critical of gay people. He just said, I don't think it's condoned in the Bible. That's the way he left it. His wife was affirming, and the two would discuss it back and forth. And he said, don't we have a division in my home? And he said, to my knowledge, we're not getting divorced over this. Uh, so he was kind of saying, well, we don't have to fight and separate over the issue. We can still remain together as Christians, even though we have a difference of opinion. Now, since then, he's changed his position. But at that time, that was his position. No, I don't think it's really condoned in the Bible. But he did, wasn't critical beyond that. But his wife was very affirming. We can have these differences. Almost every denomination has divisions, if they're a large denomination, over what is the role for gay and bisexual people. How do we view them? How do we treat them in our churches? It's pretty well a universal thing with almost every single major denomination where it's being discussed and debated. And there may be affirming groups within those denominations that are supporting and promoting tolerant views in the inclusion of LGBT people. So then I would ask, based on your understanding of the scripture, based on all of the available information that you have in your hands, what would you say is the proper way to conduct oneself in a homosexual relationship in a Christian context? What's the proper way of conducting yourself in a straight relationship in a Christian context? 
I would say that based on scripture, it would be wait until marriage to have sexual relations with one another. The husband is the head of the household. The wife is meant to submit to the husband in the decisions that he makes. That kind of traditional understanding of the scripture. That's fairly recent traditional understanding. So the traditional traditional understanding, if you go way back, Men could have multiple wives. They could have sex slaves. Some of them were called concubines. Men had multiple relationships with women. There was a one-ring ceremony. The woman wore the ring to designate to herself and to others that she's in relationship with only this man. The man didn't wear a ring. His man didn't su- did not swear, you know, this is the only person I'm going to have sex with. Didn't make that kind of a contract. So we had a very different sense in the Old Testament than what Jesus comments about and where we kind of develop our theology based more on the New Testament. So if we're looking for examples in the Bible as to what a good family is, there probably aren't very many that are really good examples. In terms of theology, there are people who are going, I would say, to a much stricter ethic than what we see in the Bible. So you can be married to a woman and not have an affair with somebody outside and yet not be faithful to her. Because the bounds of faithfulness include far more than who you have sex with. Now, a a theology which I like is based on an ethic that is far harder to keep than I'm not going to have sex with anybody other than my wife or husband. And that is all sex that I have will be be mutually pleasurable. In other words, it's not just for me. It will be fully informed, and it will only be with consent between two adults. Now, until, I don't remember when the law changed, but it's been in the last, I believe, I believe it's been less than 100 years, there was no such thing, if you go back 100 years or more, of rape. A man could not rape his own wife. It was considered to be impossible. If a woman went to court and said, my husband raped her, the judge would go, you can't. There's, there's no such thing as a husband raping a wife. We understand now that there is such a thing. And that consent has to be given each time. It's not something because we're married, there's blankets, consent to absolutely anything that a person wants to do. So these understandings of what is ethical, I think, have changed. The ethics that I've heard coming from not just LGBT Christians, but a number of more progressive theologians take the sexual ethics that we see in the Bible and take them a lot farther. It's kind of like the ethic that Jesus gives versus the law. So when Jesus was asking, what are the two commands, you know, one of the most important commandments, sorry, he points the person back to what are the two most important laws? Well, love to God and love to humanity. Those are the two most important laws. Well, those are the two principles that all of the rest of the laws are based on. So all 613 commands in the Torah are all based on love to God and love to other humans. So if we look at this and say, what are the principles that we see in the Bible, well, all of the principles that Jesus was talking about, the principles that we would get from the Pauline epistles about marriage, can be derived from mutual consent among adults, can be derived from mutual pleasure and informed consent. So there's the information, there's the consent, there's the mutual pleasure among adults. That's a far more difficult thing to live by than to live by just the law. So let's go back to the commandments, the Ten Commandments. It says, thou shalt not murder. I can hate somebody all my life, but I haven't murdered them, so if I violated that commandment? According to Torah, no. According to Jesus, yes. That's why we need to look beyond just strictly laws and say, what is the spirit behind this? 
and how do I live that out? And we find that within Christian circles, that's changed over the last 200 years. Certainly changed over the last thousand years. Same way within Judaism. Judaism is a very different sense of some areas of how to live out life morally now than it had, say, a thousand or fifteen hundred or two thousand years ago. But would you still say that, like, there's a need for sexual purity and a need for hierarchy in a relationship when it comes to homosexual? Why would there be a need for hierarchy in any relationship? Makes things a little bit easier. Maybe. Is it supposed to be easy or is it supposed to be mutual respect? Please expand on that idea. So I can, if I'm the boss because I'm the man and I'm married to a woman, we use this as our hypothetical construct, what I say isn't necessarily law, nor should it be seen that way. It's a relationship between two equals who come together in love to create a household and create a life partnership. It's not a relationship between a master and slave. Those are very different. So the man's thing in the relationship is not to boss the woman around. The woman's position in the relationship is not to be the slave and the servant and the housekeeper and the cook for the man. These are things that are negotiated. So if we start with the premise that I am married to someone who has infinite dignity and worth and value, this person is a God carrier, and to treat that person very differently than if I say, I'm in charge of this house because I'm a man. You're not a man, therefore you do what I say. Very different relationship. And I think the one is godly and the other one not so. But if we go through and study the passages where it talks about women being subordinate to men, if you look at what the role that men have, that isn't easy. And it's really a relationship of mutual support and respect and love, as opposed to, I have the relationship that says, I don't wash the dishes and you do. And I would agree with that. I would say that I wouldn't necessarily frame the heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman as a master and a slave. It'd be more along the lines of a leader and a follower. But see, the unfortunate thing is the master and slave has always often been interpreted by some abusive men. Of course. And a leader and a follower who leads whom is the big question. Uh, one of my superiors used to teach uh, junior high and high school students for years in the classroom environment. He would ask the students this, in your home, who makes the decisions? The parents, usually. He said he, he was asking it was the mother or the father. And he said in no case did he ever hear a student say, my dad makes the big decisions. In my home, it wasn't that way either. If the decision was a little dicey, my father would say, go talk to your mother. And those bigger decisions, my mother made. And that's quite common in relationships. Women actually have a lot of informal power in relationships. Let's go back to the history of Muslims in Edmonton. It was the women who went door to door in the downtown businesses, knocking on doors, raising money to build the first mosque in Edmonton, the first mosque in Canada. It wasn't the men, it was the women who were the real movers and shakers on, we've got to have a mosque and we're going to go raise some money for that. Yet when we look at Islam, we often think, well, the men have very traditional roles. And the women have very traditional roles. There's a lot of power that's not official, not traditional, that's still there. So who really is the person in power? We often find that the person who we think doesn't have power actually has a great deal of influence. So how is one supposed to define a vision for what one's life is meant to be like in a homosexual relationship? Well, the same way you would in a straight relationship. It's a negotiated thing. This is what makes it 
difficult when a person's getting into a, a long-term relationship. Do you have, as a couple, life goals and values that will allow you to share your life, your goals, your values in harmony? That's sometimes not that easy to determine. Is there physical chemistry? Is not always that hard to determine. I look, the person's wonderfully beautiful, or I look, the person's really hideously ugly. That may settle the physical chemistry portion of it, but it doesn't settle how would we work together. And it also doesn't answer the question, is this person livable? I'm not talking about lovable, livable. Those are two very different things. So if I'm in a relationship with this person, can it work or is the person so obnoxious and weird that it would never work? I mean, that's something we have to kind of keep in mind, too. This is why a longer period of time where we get to know somebody is probably much better than if we say, oh, gee, you know, pack up your U-Hauls, our third date, we'll move in. I would say you make a lot of good points, and I think that sort of brings clarity to, I suppose, my understanding of the way that you understand Scripture and the way that homosexual relationships can still be compatible with biblical theology in its own way. A lot of people in the LGBT community don't see things that way, though. I have a very strict policy against name-calling on this podcast, and for you, I don't really feel the need to throw out any slurs or insults. Thank you. But I, w- I was talking with uh, another friend of mine about this conversation that we're having right mm-hmm. now. I-, I spoke to him about you, and, and, and this friend of mine is queer. He wanted me to tell you that he thought you were delusional. <laughs> well, there are many people who are atheists or agnostic who believe that anyone who believes there's a god is delusional. Yeah, but like coming from a queer person who might not be all that religious looking at you, how how exactly would you respond to something like that? Because like like it's it's one thing if someone were to say call you a faggot Because you could just dismiss that as like, I don't know what you're talking about. But like, if someone were to ascribe you as the label of delusional, I I think that carries very specific connotations about your character. Did he think I was delusional because I believe in God? Or did he think I was delusional because I was a Christian and gay? I think the latter. Okay. And and both are fair. They're fair comments. I get along quite well with quite a few atheists because they have honesty and integrity. I appreciate that very much. Can a person be gay and Christian? Well, the world's largest LGBT organization is a Christian church. Where is that? Metropolitan Community Church Denomination. And they have hundreds of congregations. That's the world's largest LGBT organization and has been for decades. Pioneers in the LGBT rights movement. And a lot of people don't realize this because it's not something that many queer people are comfortable talking about. Churches probably had... Not, church, not just churches, but churches as well as synagogues and so on, probably had almost as important a role in the LGBT movement as they did in the black civil rights movement, where many of the leaders of the black civil rights movement were Christian ministers. Martin Luther King Jr. was a Christian minister. But I've heard some of the pioneers of the black civil rights movement preaching in churches because they were ordained ministers and they're powerful speakers. They bring a lot of history in and they're still concerned very much about human rights. And some of them include LGBT rights too because they knew that one of the top members of the, of the black civil rights movement was a gay man. 
This is a part of history. It's not a part of history. It's talked about that much, but it's a part of history. So there was a very strong spiritual presence in the first pride parades. The importance was stressed on clergy coming out with clerical collars and being a visible sign of presence because it was needed. People were very hurt who were LGBT. They've been beaten up by churches and synagogues and so on emotionally and were dealing with a lot of pain and anguish. And for them to be able to see somebody coming along who's a spiritual leader and has some credibility spiritually was very much healing for them. I've certainly seen that in more contemporary pride parades, parades I've been in, where people found a sense of healing and comfort for seeing openly queer Christians taking part in pride parades. There is an element of healing that comes, and it's been a part of the movement. So Troy Perry, the founder of the Metropolitan Community Churches, went to court in the early 1970s to try and gain the rights for same-sex marriage. That wasn't even on anyone's agenda, I think, in the 19, early 1970s, except his. So he did that. He went on a hunger strike in California until they raised enough money to fight a proposition that would have allowed any public employer to fire anyone who was suspected of being homosexual from any publicly funded job, teaching, government jobs, and so on, at any level in the state of California. And he starved himself until they raised the money. So his role in that was probably almost as pivotal as Harvey Milk's role. If we look at other churches that had a pivotal role, United Church of Canada in 1988 saying, we are prepared to let openly gay and lesbian people become ordained ministers. It was a massive move on the part of a major church denomination, the largest Protestant denomination in Canada at that time. It was a big move and it really made a difference in the United States. The United Church of Christ has been a strong leader in trying to bring about equity and equality for LGBT people. And the same with the Unitarian Universalists in the US and in Canada, they call themselves, generally call themselves Unitarians. There's been a long history of equality there. So the Unitarians, Unitarian Universalists, their cousins kind of, they were the first people to ordain, a first major denomination to ordain an openly gay person. That's historic. So we start looking through this, we see a, a trend there. In the United States, why did they get through same-sex marriage? Because a group of clergy made up of United Unitarian Universalist United Church of Christ threatened a lawsuit over freedom of religion because they could not practice their religious beliefs by, because they were not allowed to marry same-sex people. So we see this major influence of church groups and spiritual people, people of faith, on the civil rights movement, both in Canada and the United States. Where did the money come from in Canada to help with the Delvin Breen case? Well, the United Church of Canada sought intervener status in Delvin Breen's case to be able to win the right for LGBT people to be considered to be a part of the human rights code in Alberta that protected people from discrimination on the job. That came from Robertson Wesley United Church in Edmonton. There's been a long history of people of faith supporting equity and equality for sexual and gender minority people. So it's not something that many people feel comfortable about in the queer community because so many people have been beaten up by churches and religious groups. How many queer people have not, not been told they're going to hell by somebody who's religious? Probably not very many. So the pain has been felt almost universally throughout the queer community. That's probably the reason why this person felt I was delusional. Like, how could a person be so crazy as to 
be a concert with the enemy, you know. Some people might view it to be almost an act of treason. I know that there are people in the queer community in Alberta who are not very comfortable with me, but many of those same people say, you know, what you're doing needs to be done. You can tell they're very uncomfortable. They understand that what I'm trying to do is to stop the pain. And if we can stop the pain on a spiritual level, an emotional level, at least reduce it for people, that's a major accomplishment. Is the idea to attract uh, LGBTQ people back into the church, or is it just trying to stop the flow of pain, and if people want to come into the church, then that's their own decision? Good question. What's the role of evangelism with people who have been deeply hurt? Is there a role for evangelism? What would that look like? And I think we could use this for not just LGBT people, but for all people who've suffered a lot of pain, especially at the hands of the church. There's a cartoon that I that I was sharing with people recently. It's by the Naked Pastors, the name of the cartoon strip. And it shows this church that's got wheels on it. And there's all these bodies underneath the church. And, and of course, there's representation of blood all over the place too. And it's talking it's in relationship to all the pain and, and terrible things that churches have done to people. And in many cases it's not intentional, but it still happens and it hurts very, very much. I'm concerned about the pain. Am I concerned about people coming back to church? Well, that would be nice, but that's not the object. I want people to heal. And some people can heal outside the church and need to. And if they do, I give them permission to do that. If people need to heal inside the church and want to do that, I'm happy to be of assistance inside the church. But the object is to help with the hurt and to help bring about healing. If that does something more spiritual between the person and God, that's okay. If it doesn't, that's okay. And so, like, what would you say is the long-term goal in terms of, like, what will happen after the healing process has come about? Like, what are your hopes for people? So I'm not here to set someone's agenda. I'm not here to tell a person where they have to go or what they have to do. I want to liberate. I see the Bible as being a very much a book of liberation. The story of Exodus, where God comes down and meets Moses at the burning bush. And at the burning bush, God tells Moses, I've heard the cries. That's the kind of God I think we serve, a God of liberation, not a God of oppression. Now, unfortunately, any human-made institution, churches, for example, mosques, synagogues, and so on, can be instruments of oppression if we're not careful. And if we make mistakes, humans do, they will at times be very oppressive. So the object is to liberate people to make their decisions. The decisions they make are up to them, not up to me. I don't have an agenda that way. My job is to liberate and to help heal. And I'm not sure if that's substantially different than what some of the apostles were doing. I'm not sure if that's substantially different than what Jesus was doing. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Sounds to me like a person who's more interested in healing humanity and in reaching out to Jewish people who felt oppressed by the Romans than it was to a person who says, gee, you have to believe that I'm my father is God and I'm divine to be saved. Well, Jesus did say that. He implied, I think, that. I'm not sure if he actually said it in that many words. We're running out of time. You need to go and do an errand, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. 
before closing off, uh, two things. First of all, is there anything that you want to plug? Like a website, a book? Oh, gee. Uh, there's some really good books and there are some websites that are outstanding. Uh, in terms of a video, there are two videos that people might find beneficial. There's a video for The Bible Told Me So, which is outstanding. And I think people would find in there a, a good, healthy discussion of homosexuality and how people of faith are relating to the issue. The video Fish Can't Fly is also a very good video. That one really does focus a lot on the Bible texts and what they may mean. Uh, I have a website that I contribute to called createdgay.com, and there's discussion there. There are LGBT-focused sermons there. There's discussions of the different Bible passages and what they may mean. There's tons of resources. There are literally hundreds of links, spiritual links uh, for the LGBT community. Uh, I think people would find that one beneficial. And uh, queer faith is a little more edgy than I am personally comfortable with, but they do some outstanding work. Uh, not queer faith, sorry, queer theology. Uh, it's definitely queer faith, but queer theology is the name of the group. And, and the second thing that I, I just want to go over, this isn't really a question, it's, it's more of a statement. For as much as we disagree with each other, even going through this conversation, I just like, I keep on thinking to myself, I don't agree with that. <laughs> and like, ah. <laughs> but like, I am thankful that we're still friends in spite of our disagreements. There have been many times in my life where I have felt down and out and powerless, and you've been there to help me out. For whatever issues I might have with your theology, of which there are many, I, I still see a lot of good in your character, and I'm glad to be your friend, and I'm glad that you exist. One of the most powerful things I saw was in a Baptist church. Sunday school got quite divided. Two guys were going at it theologically. At the end, they stood up and hugged and embraced each other and affirmed that they were brothers in Christ. And to me, that's what it's about. I mean, I've taken seminary courses at Baptist and Catholic and Unitarian Universalist and broadly Christian, not formally affiliated seminaries, and I've gained a lot from each of those. And I don't have to agree with people to appreciate them and to share part of a life journey with them. And I appreciate the fact that you've shared part of your life journey with me. Yeah. Anyways, that's it for now. See you guys later. This has been Because We're Not the Same, a podcast hosted, produced, and edited by Nathan Raymond Ray, with special guest Gary Simpson. To listen to more episodes, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Verbal, iHeartRadio, or Podbean. You can also visit our Facebook page or our website, bwntscast.wordpress.com. If you're interested in coming on the show as a guest, feel free to reach out to us, and we'll see about having you on. Thank you for listening. <laughs>